0: Live from New York City, it's the Gary Knoll Show, and now, your host, Gary Null. Well, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll, broadcasting and video streaming live from our studios in New York City, and I welcome you. Today, no guest, lots of commentaries. We start off, of course, with the latest on health and healing. Facts about phosphoric acid, that's what's in... A lot of colas. Then a study on virgin coconut oil reducing symptoms of pain if you have chemotherapy. Why Cannabis is the Future of Medicine from Sayer G of Green Med Info. The Omega-3 Reduces Antisocial Behavior in Kids. A long-term study from Oxford University and a lot more on health and healing. From the environmental segment of our program... Top experts warn of inevitable Fukushima disaster in California, from Anthony Gussiardi. Then we also have The Most Evil Medical Experiments Conducted in History, by Larry Schwartz of Alternet. Also today, Charter Schools Making Big Profits for Private Companies, by Noah Pransky of uh, WTSP Tampa. Also, police state, U.S. military plans to crush dissent, to destroy political groups, to target leaders with sniper fire. That's interesting. We want to know about that. And I'll share that with you from Thomas Gase from Global Research and more. I'll also be taking your calls later on the program. Our call-in number is 888 also, if you want to watch today's program, just go to Ustream channel and search for Gary Nall. And if you're about and you want to listen to the program by telephone anywhere in the United States or Canada, you can call this number. You should write this down because you never know when you're going to be away from a radio uh, or a Internet and have to rely upon a cell phone. The number is 712 432 72 Let's begin. We know that the omega-3 fatty acids are important. We know that if we have those DHA and other essential fatty acids in our body, it reduces our risk of a heart attack, a stroke. It helps turn off inflammation. But this is published in the peer-reviewed Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry. It was done at Oxford University. Quote, High-dose omega-3 supplementation can reduce antisocial behavior in children and alter parent attitudes. This was a two-year study. It found six months of daily supplementation resulted in a 41% reduction in parent-related child um, adverse behavior, especially in the 8- to 16-year-olds. Quote from Professor David Smith, Professor Emeritus of Pharmacology at Oxford University. This is a very interesting, well performed study. What is striking is that the effect was found six months after the end of a six month treatment period, but was not apparent immediately after the end of the treatment. More than half the improvement was associated with a change in the parents' attitudes. End quote. Now, why is this important? <clears throat> I'll give you two reasons I believe are essential. One because of work done by Dr. Alexander Schaus back in the 1970s and by Dr. Scholenthauer. They both were working on this line that children and uh, also people in prison have a lot amount of sugar and dairy in their diet. Remove the sugar and remove the dairy, and you're removing something that causes allergies, including cerebral allergies, the dairy, and remove the sugar, and you're eliminating something that causes a hyper-agitation. And they were correct. In the prison systems that they worked with, when the sugar and dairy was removed, there was a substantial reduction in violence. We've also noticed that in children today... And for probably the last 30 years, they have been having an inordinate amount of high fructose corn syrup in the diet, soft drinks, caffeine, and it's one of those things you don't pay attention to. You don't realize how much sugar and how much caffeine a child is consuming. Because at a certain point, we just think it's normal. If it's the summertime, or a person's had a workout and they have a 16-ounce or a larger bottle of soda, we think, what's the problem? Well, the problem is the amount of concentrated caffeine and sugar. The two together can create an over-agitation of the brain. I remember counseling a physician, a woman who had three children, and we were debating the research I had done for my doctoral thesis on caffeinism. And I suggested that more than 50 grams of caffeine a day can be adverse to health. And she said, well, I haven't seen that. And I said, okay, when do your children act out? And she thought for a moment. She said, well, they bounce off the walls when they get home from school. Why? Because when they get home from school, they're not supervised, and they generally come home and start having sodas. There's your caffeine. There's your sugar. There's your hyper agitated state and kids don't know how to channel that so they act it out so we need to realize that an awful lot of kids diagnosed with hyperactivity and ADHD don't have a brain chemical imbalance they have a highly agitated brain from the caffeine and the sugar especially now that you have energy drinks and the energy drinks will give you as much caffeine as you get into two espressos I did a um, a survey of a group of children that whose parents had brought them over, and I wanted to see how much caffeine they were consuming. On average, it was over 400 milligrams a day. That means you're really putting your kid at risk. Get rid of the caffeine, get rid of the sugar, and you're going to see an awful lot of better behavior. And that's what that study's really showing. Now, there's been an enormous amount of research in the last couple of years on the cannabinoids, the active chemicals in in cannabis. This is from Sayer G. of Green Med Info. Here's what he says, quote, The future of medicine rests on the fundamental right we all have to use things that spring from the earth naturally as healing agents. We should use cannabis used at least one, no, 10,000 years by humankind to alleviate suffering and, uh, The politics of cannabis are exceedingly complex, and yet the truth is simple. This freely growing plant heals the body, not to mention provides food, fuel, clothing, and shelter, if only we'll let it perform its birthright. And then he goes into the actual science of it. And here is what he has to say on that. Let's look at the actual vetted published peer-reviewed literature, bulletproof, if we're able to subscribe to the evidence-based medical model, which includes over 100 proven therapeutic actions of this amazing plant featuring the fallible, multiple sclerosis, Tourette syndrome, pain, compulsive obsessive disorder, insomnia, memory disorders, social anxiety disorders, ALS, inflammatory bowel, cancer, opiate addiction, anorexia, bladder dysfunction, bronchial asthma, constipation, crack addiction, dementia, fibromyalgia, glycoma, heroin addiction, lymphoma, nausea, neuropathy, obesity, phantom limb syndrome, spinal cord injuries, endotoxemia, myocardial infarction, heart attack, oxidative stress, diabetes, cataracts, tremors, cardiac arrhythmias, fatigue, um, low immune function, aging, alcohol toxicity, ascites, atherosclerosis, type 1 diabetes, high cholesterol, liver damage, menstrual syndrome, morphine dependence, appetite disorders, auditory disease, dystonia, Epstein-Barr infection, hepatitis, BNC, intestinal permeability, leukemia, liver fibrosis, migraine disorders, psoriasis, and moreover, this plant's therapeutic properties have been subdivided into 40-plus pharmaceutical actions. Then it goes through all the different actions of what it does inside the body. Now, mind you, this is not the same as smoking marijuana. This is where you're getting the benefit of the uh, the actual chemicals that are in the plant. So, for those who want to look at the science, the science is substantial. Now a lot of people are now beginning to pay attention to coconut oil. I'm talking about raw organic coconut oil. I was using coconut oil in 1974 on a group of individuals that were suffering from bowel disorders. I had been asked by a Dr. Stephen Caeza, a physician, a gay physician, and hence he had principally a gay clientele, and he called me one day, came over, and was going through all these records saying, I don't know what to do with them. They're not responding to any therapy I give them, and I know that you work with things that don't uh, respond well. So I interviewed a group of the people and uh, looked at their lifestyle, and almost all of these were what were called fast-track gays. Now, there's only a small percentage, two to three percent of all gays that engage in what was known as a fast-track lifestyle. It would have been very similar to those couples, married heterosexual couples, that were engaged in the swingers' lifestyle. There was a lot of of amyl nitrate anal intercourse, unprotected, um, alcohol, lots of um, immunodepressive things. And I said, well, why don't you find a group of people who are willing to change their lifestyles to a healthier lifestyle. And he found a group of people, and I work with them. And over a period of about a year, those who stuck with the protocol had complete recovery and no longer had yeast in their intestines and all forms of, um, let's say, leaky gut syndrome and autoimmune conditions and fatigue. And one of the things that was... the high end of the protocol, there were about 50 things on the protocol, was raw organic coconut oil. I actually had him take the raw organic coconut oil twice a day in a drink, a bitter melon juice, uh, which looks something like a cucumber, but it's very bitter, but it's extremely healing, especially against viruses and bacteria, plus a, a homeopathic zeolites and a lot of other nutrients. It and I did this for at least 10 years working with Dr. Kaeza, I have no idea now how many people I saw, but it was in the hundreds. And then he began to uh, use these therapies in his own practice. And then we saw this becoming AIDS, but I had seen it earlier. And it was not in all gays. It was not in 97% of the gays. It was only in a small fraction. But I also saw the same identical symptoms in heterosexual couples that it had the fast lifestyle. But no one paid attention to that. No one wanted to hear that argument. And so virgin olive oil, I've given it to people with multiple sclerosis, with amazing results, Parkinson's disease, and Alzheimer's and dementia. This is the latest from Brian Shohevy of Health Impact News. Quote, once again, research into the health benefits of coconut oil is mainly being done outside of the United States, primarily in coconut-producing countries. Here in the United States, only pharmaceutical drugs can make health claims by law. The FDA regulates all health claims and only allows pharmaceutical companies that have gone through the lengthy and costly drug approval process to make such claims. No company in the United States would spend that kind of money on research for a product found in nature that cannot be patented. A study just published in the journal... Libets in Health and Disease, looked at Malaysian women suffering from breast cancer. The study author stated the purpose of the study in the abstract, quote, The disease and its treatment can disrupt the lives of women and adversely affect all aspects of life and thus can alter a woman's quality of life. The aim of this study was to examine the effect of virgin coconut oil on the quality of life of patients diagnosed with breast cancer, end quote. The study looked at 60 women with stage 3 and stage 4 breast cancer. 30 women were randomly assigned to a control group with no virgin coconut oil supplement, and 30 women were randomly assigned to the intervention group that did receive virgin coconut oil. The results? This is the abstract. There were significant mean score differences for functioning and global quality of life between groups. The intervention group also had better scores for symptoms including fatigue, sleep difficulties, loss of appetite, compared to the control group. Although there are deteriorations of sexual enjoyment, the intervention group exhibited improvement in breast functioning and symptoms scores for body image, sexual function, future perspective, breast symptoms, and systemic therapy side effects the virgin coconut oil consumption during chemotherapy helped improve the functioning status and global quality of life in addition it reduced the symptoms related to side effects of chemotherapy so that was some good research on extra virgin coconut oil and by the way coconut oil is great just to put it in your smoothie in the morning along with flaxseed oil. The two really good oils go together. And if you're going to cook something, always use either coconut oil, macadamia oil, or mustard seed oil because they're extremely tolerant to higher temperatures. Hopefully you're not using higher temperatures. But also it's good to uh, put baste a potato with coconut oil, and that way you don't burn the skin, but you get good uh, a good quality and good flavor now a lot of people drink soft drinks and they never look at what's in the bottle they should because phosphoric acid is one of the top ingredients in colas and there's an enormous amount of evidence that phosphoric acid is extremely irritating and then when you add in the high fructose corn syrup that goes with it then you've got two negatives here is what is the latest on phosphoric acid. Quote, corrosive, causes burns, harmful to swallow, harmful when in contact with skin, may be harmful through inhalation, very destructive of mucous membranes, very destructive of respiratory tract, eyes, and skin, very destructive to bones by degrading bone density, uh, culprit in dental erosion, and contributor to osteoporosis. Well, how many people would buy a cola if that was advertised? as a side effect of drinking it. So, please pay attention to that. And finally, a huge 40-year study, 180,000 women find that flavanols can reduce ovarian cancer risk. Quote, regular consumption of flavanols and flavanone, bioactive compounds, including green tea, citrus fruits, and fresh fruit juices, can lower the risk of ovarian cancer by as much as 21%. And this is in a study that was began in 1976, 180,000 women. It was published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, and it found that if you had 75 milligrams per day, you could lower the risk of ovarian cancer. Seventy-five milligrams a day is not much. So it doesn't take a lot here to make a difference. So here you have it peer-reviewed journal, the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. The article is entitled Intake of Dietary Flavonoids and Risk of Epithelial Ovarian Cancer. And a large population group, 171,940, and over a long period of time 40 years. Now you would think it was something that meets all of that criteria that there would be a major push now to get women, in particular, to start consuming green tea, berries, blueberries, raspberries, strawberries, all those are great source of flavonoids, Grapes, number one would be grapes, and not a word. So I wanna share that with you. I'm Gary Knoll. Now we're going to go to our environmental segment, and I'm gonna share an article I read read this today. I came back on a plane today. I, I went out to California yesterday, north of San Francisco, and I want to thank the many, many people who came over um, yesterday afternoon at four o 'clock when I began my do my lecture as it was a continuing education credit for nurses and it was all physicians and scientists from Stanford and other places and um, I gave my presentation and I had to get because I had to get back to New York. So it was out and right back just hours later. But there were a lot of ex-New Yorkers there and talked about how they missed the show. And I said, well, you could be listening on Progressive Radio Network. And now they'll hopefully reconnect. But I also said, please pay attention to radiation problems on the West Coast. They said, what problems? And I said, well, I'll deal with that tomorrow. So for those of you who are listening from California, Anthony Guziardi wrote an article and it's entitled Top Experts Warn of an Inevitable Fukushima Disaster in California. I'll quote it. Since the catastrophic meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant in March of 2011, irreparably altering the state of the planet for the known future, the incident has been shrouded in nothing but bureaucratic cover-ups and government-backed disinformation. Now, within our own borders, top experts, turn whistleblowers, are warning of a nuclear nightmare that could surpass Fukushima and Chernobyl alike by leaps and bounds. Initially listed as a level four incident on the international nuclear event scale, pressure from scientists on an international level ultimately led to Fukushima's classification as a maximum level seven accident within the system. Now, even after witnesses have come forward telling us the truth, we're still not fully aware of how dangerous this has become. At top-level nuclear experts, including a senior federal nuclear inspector, Term Whistleblower, are warning that the California-based plant is sitting sitting radioactive duck among the nearby faults that have actually been found to be more dangerous than previously thought. Back in 2008, a new fault known as the Shoreline Fault was discovered just offshore from the Diablo Canyon nuclear facility, a discovery that truly changes everything about the so called safety of the California plant. A whistleblower and former federal inspector of the plant, Michael Peck, has even presented his case highlighting the serious hazards of the plant he used to oversee to the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission in a highly confidential report. National organizations are already calling attention to Peck's findings and reports with senior strategist Damien Mulgan of Friends of the Earth. Quote, We agree with him that Diablo Canyon is vulnerable to earthquakes and must be shut down immediately. Rather than the NRC keeping this a secret, there must be a thorough investigation with public hearings to determine whether these reactors can operate safely. End quote. Yet it appears that the general public is not even being made aware of what's really going on, let alone the real threat that they face on a national and international level. Lee Ann McAdoo recently traveled to the very location of the Diablo Canyon nuclear site, where residents and visitors alike were shocked to learn about what the experts had to say regarding their local nuclear power plant. As usual, the general public is not being told about ways in which they can prepare themselves for a nuclear meltdown. Instead, government officials are caught back in February stockpiling iodine stores in excess of 14 million doses in a purchase order that came conveniently after reports began surfacing over another possible meltdown at the Fukushima plant. The doses will be enough for many officials and federal employees. However, the public will be forced to fend for themselves. And they will not even be told about the necessity of iodine, nor how they can better prepare their families for a radioactive scenario. The reality is that even getting a hold of low-quality potassium iodine, which I would not ever personally take over a higher-quality pure form of iodine, is becoming difficult as the population becomes aware of Fukushima's expansive dangers. Many manufacturers are now stockpiling raw iodine and holding on to the element as a form of investment with the knowledge that Fukushima may very well uh, end up coming in the United States. But even outside of Peck's analysis and years of experience as a nuclear inspector, at the federal level, numerous high-level scientists and researchers have been speaking out about the continuation of Fukushima's devastating effects and the need to further stabilize and shut down nuclear power plants along the fault lines throughout the United States, and California is not the only region in question. Even another earthquake affecting Japan could lead to the well it could lead to devastation. In statements made during a presentation on water ecology at the University of Alberta, award-winning scientist David uh, Suzuki went on record in saying that the event of another 7 or another earthquake, which he says has about a 95% chance of occurring over the next three years, it would require complete evacuation in North America, mean that Japan would no longer be habitable. Quote, I have seen a paper which says that if, in fact, the fourth plant goes under in an earthquake at Fukushima and those stored fuel rods are exposed, it's the end of Japan as we know it, and everybody on the west coast of North America would have to evacuate. Specifically speaking to the nature of Fukushima's ticking time bomb, uh, Suzuki began, um, began uh, the breakdown of the plant's numerous threats by stating that the very real concept that Fukushima is perhaps the largest threat to both humanity and the planet that we face in the immediate future. Quote, Fukushima is the most terrifying situation I can imagine. Uh, three out of four plants were destroyed in the earthquake and in the tsunami. The fourth one has been so badly damaged that the fear is if there's another earthquake of seven or above on the Richter scale, that building will go and then all hell breaks loose and the probability of a seven or above earthquake in the next three years is over 95%. And Suzuki is not the only one with major concerns. In fact, Suzuki is perhaps one of the very few who actually receive media attention due to his celebrity status as a recipient of 16 significant academic awards and host of the popular uh, CBC television program entitled The Nature of Things. Young University professor Charles Perrault has voiced similar concerns in a telling piece entitled Fukushima Forever, which highlights the very serious threat of nuclear meltdown as a result of human error when it comes to removing the plant's spent fuel rods. A danger that the United States government certainly recognizes is legitimate based upon an analysis of top experts and undoubtedly is silently preparing for behind the scenes. Professor Perro from uh, Yale University writes, quote, Much more serious is the danger that the spent fuel pool at the top of the nuclear plant number four will collapse in a storm or an earthquake or a failed attempt to carefully remove each of the 1,535 spent fuel rods and safely transport them to the common storage pool 50 meters away. Conditions in the unit four pool 100 feet above the ground are perilous, and if any two of those rods touch, it could cause a nuclear reaction that would be uncontrollable. The radiation emitted from all these rods if they are not continually cool and kept separate, would require the evacuation of surrounding areas, including Tokyo. And because the radiation at the site is 6,375 rods and the common storage pool could not be continuously cooled, they would f- would f- cause fission and all of humanity would be threatened for thousands of years. End quote. So the Fukushima nuclear reactor problem is is far from over, and even now the disaster is being extremely mishandled and blatantly ignored by plant operator TEPCO and the Japanese government. And in the event of an American Fukushima within California, which would in fact be much more devastating, there is truly no telling how fatal that would be. Now, my perspective. Um, I left back to New York at 3 o'clock this morning, from California. I was actually north of San Francisco in Napa Valley. My driver had been a former housing inspector until he retired and lives in Napa. And we had a conversation, which was about an hour and a half conversation from there down to the airport. And I asked him, what did you think about the earthquake that happened two weeks ago? He said, well, he said it broke every piece of glass in my home, every television, every computer, everything was glass shattered. He said it scared us because it was not your normal short-duration earthquake. It lasted about 40 seconds. He said it caused a lot of destruction. And uh, he said and it caught us all by surprise. We never expected it. And he said even as a building inspector, we have some of the toughest regulations in the world on earthquake building, and yet it didn't do any good when we had what was not a very high uh, earthquake score, but it caused over a $1,500,000,000 in damage and counting. And I said, you know you have the Duablo Canyon nuclear power plants, and they sit on this fault line, so if the big earthquake happens, that plant's going to melt down, and you've you've got tens of millions of people in California that have no place to go and especially in Los Angeles, and they're going to end up being infected by the radiation impacted. And he said he knew. But he wasn't going to do anything. He was just going to rebuild. And I said, why? He said, well, he said maybe I'm just a creature of comfort, a creature of habit, but I'm just not ready to pull up and move anywhere. I'll just repair, rebuild. My walls are all cracked. Uh, The foundation was, was adversely affected but I'm also a builder and I know how to fix this. And I said, well, that's you. So you know how bad it's going to be when there's another one. And he said, well, I just hope there's not. Hoping there's not doesn't work for me. So for all of my audience, and there's a lot, who are listening, over 23,000 from Los Angeles alone, my suggestion is pay attention. Fukushima is just as disastrous today as it was on the day of its meltdown. Every second of the day is spewing uncontrolled radiation into the ocean and into the air. And 100 feet above the ground, over 1,500 spent fuel rods, another tsunami, another earthquake, and nothing will live in Japan. And you have 100 million people, over 100 million, you have no place to put them. No place to get them out to safety. so, And we've been hit with radiation on the West Coast. So all I can do is just let you know that it's not will it happen, it's just when. I hope this audience is out of harm's way when it does. Now from something different. As many of you know, I am working to get ready for a feature film that will be presented in the next, hopefully, eight weeks. I'll have a premiere on the poor in America. This is the latest from Common Dreams and from Nadia Proupas. Quote, The nation's poor remain hungry as Wall Street feasts. Critics and anti-poverty advocates are questioning the so-called economic recovery as the USDA study published this week revealed that while the nation's wealthiest enjoyed record gains, 50 million Americans continue with food insecurity. According to the government figures, while a majority of people who are not always able to afford food last year were adults, 16 million children went hungry. And that means in 360,000 households, kids had to skip meals because there was no food, frequently for the entire day. Joel Berg, executive director of the New York uh, City Coalition Against Hunger, said the country's widespread hunger problem is deeply connected to the government's pro-corporation anti-worker policies. Quote, a country that combines massive hunger with record Wall Street markets is so derailed we can't even find our tracks anymore. These startling numbers prove that there has been no true economic recovery for tens of millions of struggling U.S. families. Overall, food insecurity is 35% higher than it was in 2007, and uh, we now have nearly 5 million Americans living on less than $2 a day. Now listen again. $2 a day. And that is what is considered abject poverty in India and Africa, and we've got nearly 5 million Americans who don't even live on $2 a day. So what are we doing about it? How about absolutely positively nothing? We're doing nothing new to help address the crisis in poverty. Now, I will show figures that are not 50 million. I'll show figures of over 200 million living just above, at, or below the poverty level. I'll show you people who are kiting their uh, credit cards, meaning they have like 20 credit cards, and they pay one gas bill or electric bill with one, knowing they've got 30 days before the bill comes in, then they'll pay that bill with another credit card and that bill with another credit card, but they have no money. More than one half of all Americans don't even have enough money to survive for two weeks without a salary. We don't hear a word. There's nothing being done to help them. all the energy is upon celebrity news and watching the rich how they spend their money. Your thoughts on this, please, I'd like to hear what you have to say. Our number is 888-874-4888. and finally, before we take our our break, this is from Larry Schwartz from Alternet, The most evil medical experiments conducted in history. By the way, all the information that I cite is posted. On the web and um, I try to put up about 50 articles a day, ones that will try to inspire, empower, motivate, give pause to people and plus the staff puts up the hard-hitting original articles by Chris Hedges and others as well. We have more progressive articles on our site than any other site in the world and we have about two and a half million people per day. Come and take a look. So thank you for looking and sharing. Evil scares us. Arguably our best horror stories, the ones that give us our nightmares, are about people doing evil things. Here are ten of the most evil experiments ever performed on human beings, black and other people of color, women, prisoners, children, gay people who have been the predominant victims. Number one, the Tuskegee Experiment. There is a good reason many African Americans are wary of the good intentions of government and the medical establishment. Even today, many believe the conspiracy theory that AIDS, which ravaged the African American community, both gay and straight, was created by the government to wipe out the African American population. There is no proof of that, however. But what there is proof of, that is not speculative and is not conspiratorial, is the Tuskegee, Alabama, 1932 experiment. At the time, treatments for syphilis, a sexually transmitted disease that causes pain, insanity, and ultimately death, were mostly toxic and ineffective, like mercury, which caused kidney failure, mouth ulcers, tooth loss, insanity, and death. Government-funded doctors decided it would be interesting to see if no treatment at all uh, was given, what would happen. And so they took a group of African Americans, and for the next 40 years, the the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male population that was what it was titled 399 syphilitic patients most of them poor black illiterate sharecroppers even after penicillin emerged as an effective treatment and cure for penicillin in 1947 was never offered these patients were never told about any of this they were simply told that they suffered from bad blood and hence were denied all treatments or given fl- fake placebos. By the end of the study in 1972, most had died from syphilis. Now, here is my own take on this. This is the CDC, a completely criminal organization. It's also a military organization. It is not a civilian organization. And syphilis is one of the most easily communicable diseases there are. You can share sweat, a kiss, saliva, and you can transmit syphilis. The question is then, how many people over this period of time had children who then have congenital syphilis and don't know it? How many people had sex or were intimate and never knew they were passing on this deadly disease? So then you could have exponentially, in 40 years, you could have had millions of people because one person gets infected, infects another, who infects another, who infects another, and so on. And yet no one was ever held accountable, no one was ever punished. Then we have the aversion project. They didn't like gay people in apartheid South Africa, especially in the armed forces. So how to get rid of them is shocking. Using army psychiatrists and military chaplains, who were presumably privy to private confidential confessions, the apartheid regime flushed out homosexuals in the armed forces. But it did not evict them from the military. The homosexual undesirables were sent to a military hospital near Pretoria to a place called Ward 22. There, between 1971 and 1989... Many victims were submitted to chemical castrations and electric shock treatment meant to cure them of their homosexual condition. Over 900 homosexuals, mostly 16- to 24-year-olds, who were drafted and had not voluntarily joined the military were subjected to force what was called sexual reassignment surgeries. Men were surgically turned into women against their will, then cast out in the world The gender reassignment often incompetent and incomplete and without the means to pay for expensive hormones to maintain their sexual identities the head of the project was Dr. Aubrey Levin went on to become a clinical professor at the University of Calgary uh, that is until 2010 when his license was suspended for making um, when he got into trouble and yet that has never been a topic of discussion and it should be the Guantanamo Uh, No, excuse me, the Guatemala uh, STD study. Syphilis seemed to bring out the inherent racism in government-funded doctors in the 1940s. As I mentioned, Tuskegee's black people weren't the only victims of moral, reprehensible studies of this disease. Turns out Guatemalans were also deemed suitable, unknowing guinea pigs by the U.S. government. Penicillin having emerged as a cure for syphilis in 1947, the government decided to see... What would happen? So the government decided that they would end up taking those with syphilis and uh, they would not treat them. And that's what they did. So they did the same thing. There were at least 1,500 victims not given penicillin just to see how long it would take. And uh, most of the people died. And um, in fact, John Charles Cutler who subsequently participated in the later stages of Tuskegee, and uh, that's another one. Again, we do it in foreign countries. Then the Agent Orange experiments. Prisoners, like people of color, have often been unwilling objects of evil experiments. From 1965 to 1966, Dr. Albert Klingman funded a Dow Chemical Johnson & Johnson U.S. Army study, conducted what was deemed, quote, dermacological research on approximately 75 prisoners. What was actually being studied was the effects of ancient orange on humans. Prisoners were injected with dioxin. That's correct, dioxin. One of the most toxic substances on the planet. 468 times the amount the study originally called for. The results were prisoners with volcanic eruptions, of severe acne combined with blackheads, cysts, pustules, and other really bad stuff on the face, armpits, and groin. Long after the experiments ended, prisoners continued to suffer the effects of the exposure. Um, Dr. Klingman, apparently very enthusiastic about the study, was quoted as saying, quote, all I saw before me were acres of skin. And uh, so, what can we say? Irradiation of black cancer patients. During the Cold War, the U.S. and the Soviet Union spent much of their time trying to figure out if they could survive a nuclear catastrophe. How much radiation could a human body take? This would be important information for the Pentagon to know in order to protect its soldiers in the event of uh, there was atomic, uh, any form of atomic holocaust. Enter the seeming uh, go-to government choice for secret experiments, the African-American. From 1960 until 1971, Dr. Eugene Sanger, a radiologist at the University of Cincinnati, led an experiment exposing 88 cancer patients, poor mostly black, to whole body radiation, even though this sort of treatment had already been pretty well discredited for the types of cancer these patients had. They were not asked to sign consent forms, nor were they told the Pentagon funded the study. They were simply told they'd be getting a treatment that might help them. Patients were exposed in a period of one hour to the equivalent of 20,000 chest X-rays with of radiation in one hour. Nausea, vomiting, severe stomach pain, loss of appetite, mental confusion, and death were the results. A report in 1972 indicated that as many as a quarter of the patients died from the radiation and poisoning. And... uh, Dr. Sanger recently received a gold medal for, quote, a career achievements" from the American College of Radiology. Then we had the slave experiments. It should be no surprise that experiments were often conducted on human chattel during America's shameful slave history. The man, considered the father of modern gynecology, J. Marion Sims, conducted numerous experiments on female slaves between 1845 and 1849. The women, afflicted with vesicovaginal Fistulas, a tear between the vagina and the bladder, suffered greatly from the condition, were incontinent, resulting in in ostracism. And because Sims felt the surgery was, quote, not painful enough to justify the trouble, as he said in a 1857 lecture, the operations were done without anesthesia. Being slaves, the women had no say as to whether they wanted the procedure or not, and some were subjected to as many as 30 operations. There were many advocates for Dr. Sims, pointing out that the women would have been anxious for any possibility of curing their condition, and that anesthetics were new and unproven. Nevertheless, it is telling that black slaves, and not white women, were the ones who were given the experiments. And then you had the chamber. Back in the Cold War, prisoners were again the victims. As the Soviet secret police conducted poison experiments in Soviet gulags, the Soviets hoped to crack uh, the uh, the or develop a deadly poison gas that was tasteless and odorless. At the laboratory known as the Chamber, unknowing and unwilling prisoners were given preparations of mustard gas, ricin, and other concoctions hidden in meals and beverages or given as medication. Presumably many of these people were not happy with their meals, although being in a gulag, records are spotty. The secret police apparently did finally come up with their dream poison called C2. According to witnesses, it caused actual physical changes and victims subsequently weakened and died within 15 minutes. Also in World War II was the heyday of evil experimentation. The Nazis experimented, the Americans experimented, the Japanese experimented, and... uh, in fact, the office submerged naked prisoners in ice water for up to three hours to study the effects of cold temperatures on human beings and devise ways to rewarm them once, uh, once the subjects were, were brought out. Other prisoners were subjected to staphylococcus, tetanus, and gas gangrene. Blood vessels were tied off to create artificial battlefield wounds. Wood shavings and glass particles were rubbed deep into the wounds to aggravate them. The goal was to test the effectiveness of, of an antibacterial agent. Women were forcibly sterilized. More gruesome, one woman had her breast tied off with a uh, string, and as a result, um, she suffered um, massive lacerations, and so it went, thousands of times. As many as 200,000 people died because of the Japanese experiments in the uh, Sino Japanese, Sino Japanese war. And uh, then add children to the list of vulnerable people. Subject to evil experiments in 1939. Wendell Johnson, University of Iowa speech pathologist and a grad stud student of Mary Tudor, conducted stuttering experiments on 22 non-stuttering orphan children. The children were split into two groups. One group was given positive speech therapy, praising them for their fluent speech. The unfortunate other group were given negative therapy, harshly criticizing them for any flaw in their speech abilities, labeling them stutters. The result of this cruel experiment was that children in the negative group, while not transforming into full-fledged stutters, suffered negative psychological effects, and several suffered from speech problems for the rest of their lives. Formerly normal children came out of the experiment dubbed the Monster Study, anxious, withdrawn, and silent. Several as adults eventually sued the University of Iowa, which settled the case in 2007. And then you had Project 4-1. Project 4-1 was a medical study conducted on the natives of the Marshall Islands, who in 1952 were exposed to radiation fallout from the Castle Bravo nuclear test at Bikini Atoll, which inadvertently blew upwind to the nearby islands. Instead of informing the residents of the island of their exposure to radiation and treating the victims while they, they studied them, the U.S. elected instead just to watch... Quietly and see what happened. And uh, for the first 10 years, miscarriages and stillbursts increased, And uh, but the U.S. government and the Department of Energy chose never to intervene, to let the people know that they had been used in a human experiment. Now, I just recited 10 studies. The Defense Department alone acknowledged 1,900 studies with radiation that it did alone. So you see, that's how much your government loves you. Back in a moment. Please stay with us. I'm Gary Nall, nice to have you with us. It's your turn now, 888-874-4888. Let's say hello to Luan Panessi, who's... Hello. Hi, Gary. Hi, uh, I had the rare privilege of um, going through some of your emails while you were flying back and forth from California. And boy, oh boy, did you get a response from these people. They said it was like getting an injection of adrenaline when you got up there to speak. So uh, if you didn't have followers there, you I bet you have a bunch of followers now. <laughs> I can only imagine what you were talking about. I got up at these conferences, you have to submit your lecture and your talking points, and they put it up on a screen, and uh, I had all mine up there, 45 points, I didn't get to one, because I, I wanted to take them in a different direction, I wanted them to know why we are a nation of duality. We say we want a cure for cancer, and we spend hundreds of billions of dollars, and we have over a million people over the last 45 years working on su- treatments for cancer, and yet at the end of the day, uh, we have no successful war on cancer. But we've made a lot of people rich, and we've given a lot of people a nice living, and I said, but the people who have had success with cancer, Dr. Stanislaw Brzezinski, Virginia Livingston-Wheeler, Lawrence Burton, um uh, Dr. Kaidi, uh, Dr. Joseph Issels, uh, Dr. Manuel Revisi and others. And they have their documentation. They refuse to look at him. So, Nicholas Gonzalez, Michael Schachter, it wouldn't matter who they are, they refuse. So, then I said the same with the war on heart disease. I said, you have the number one medical condition causing people to die is heart heart attacks. Second is stroke. And I said, you have one of the speakers here this uh, weekend uh, is uh, the man who did the first two studies published in peer-reviewed literature, including the New England Journal of Medicine and uh, the British Medical Journal, The Lancet, which proved that with diet, exercise, stress management, and supplements, you could reverse atherosclerosis, clogged arteries, and, uh, and yet no one has followed his work. And these were good studies. And I said, so uh, with mental health, we don't pay attention. We just drug people for conditions they don't have. I said, so virtually all of medicine is based upon a notion of wanting to be rewarded for being in control of a paradigm that has failed miserably and caused death and injury. And there's nothing medical in, in healing uh, with the current paradigm. And anyone who suggests otherwise is cast out. The same is true. We gave $21 trillion to the banks that caused the problem and did not give any of that $21 trillion to small business owners or homeowners. We didn't stop with a, a moratorium on home foreclosures. Uh, and look at so, so on the one hand, we say we want to recover the economy, and all we do is put that money into hands that will not touch the economy, just hurt the economy. We say we want students to learn and be a productive part of society, yet we dumb down the curriculum and only pay attention to test scores instead of do they know how to be critical thinkers when they leave college, and then we saddle them with debt, and we say we want to be productive and be a part of the American dream, yet they're in debt peonage, and they create laws that don't allow them to get out of bankruptcy. So I said virtually everything in our society is its opposite. We are completely a dualistic society. So whatever politician tells you, almost always the opposite is true. And so that was my talk. So I did a whole talk on the nature of of the psychopaths within society and why we do not have any movement that is going to change any of that because no one's willing to acknowledge the weakness and limitation of our existing paradigm. We're not willing to admit that we're biased in the media. Even today, the New York Times on the front page stated that these think tanks that end up giving us all of the so-called experts that appear on Fox and MSNBC and and, and uh, NPR, they're being bought. Norway gave $5 million uh, to one of these think tanks. And so they're all bought, but all this audience has known that for a long time. So I did not do my nutrition talk. I did a different talk, and and that seemed to have caught their interest, and I'm glad it did. So, good. Thank you. Luanne Panessi. We're out of time, and I want to thank you all for taking your time to listen in today, and we look forward to sharing more on tomorrow's program.